The recent unprovoked Russian invasion into Ukraine has brought fears of a new era of European warfare to the forefront of the NATO alliance. As Ukraine's significantly smaller military and ordinary citizens fight off daily Russian attacks, the rest of the world is watching and providing support through sanctions, military and financial aid, and by accepting Ukrainian refugees. However, any direct involvement in this conflict could still quickly escalate the war to a scale that we've not seen since 1945. Is a peaceful resolution still possible? And if not, at what point would NATO intervene? Hello and welcome this afternoon to a critical program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Welcome to the Ukraine edition of our real-time report programming, our newest series designed to offer quick expert analysis on the biggest hot-button issues that occur around the world. Though I truly wish we did not have to have this program today to discuss, we're fortunate to have with us Ambassador Kay Bailey Hutchison, who served as the uh, 22nd permanent representative to the NATO Alliance. Also joining us to moderate the conversation is Anna Borshkevskaya. I'd like to thank our friends at AJC Dallas, the American Jewish Committee of Dallas, for partnering with us to present this webinar. It's great to have all of you. As members of our global community here in Dallas, you know that staying up to date with world events is crucial. If you're not a member of our council yet, please join us. I'd love to see you at our programs. We are moving back to in-person programming and I want you part of our network of engaged citizens. So please do visit our website at dfwworld.org to view all of uh, the options for membership. The council is committed to providing a safe environment within our capacity for our community members. We're really excited to be going back in person. We started last fall, we're continuing that. And we'll also, uh, per what our constituency, there's a group of us that still are comfortable with webinars, so we'll still be continuing that as well. But we'll be in person and we're also updating our policies to reflect the new CDC standards regarding mask usage. So stay tuned for that. And for all up-to-date information, check out our website again at dfwworld.org. The Honorable Kay Bailey Hutchison served as U.S. Permanent Representative to NATO in Brussels from 2017 to 2021. During her years as ambassador, she focused on the importance of US leadership in the organization and strengthening the transatlantic bond that has provided the security umbrella for Europe and North America now for 72 years. Of course, many of you know her as Senator Hutchison, having represented Texas in the US Senate for 20 years. Ambassador Hutchison is the author of three books, including the bestseller, American Heroines. She has a BA from the U University of Texas at Austin and a JD from the University of Texas School of Law. And our moderator, Anna Borshkevskaya, is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. She's an expert on Putin's vision for Russia's position in the world and Russia's policy towards the Middle East. Anna was formerly Anna was formerly, rather, an analyst for, US, for a US military contractor in Afghanistan. The author of 2021, her 2021 book, Putin's War in Syria, Anna is also published in Foreign, Foreign Affairs, The Hill, Forbes, and among others. I know Ambassador Hutchison and Anna will help us understand this horrific crisis that is unfolding by the hour. And I know that they come from informed perspectives. Ladies, I am very excited to have you here. Uh, I'll be at the topic. So thank you for joining us and I will let you both take it away from, from here. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for this for this very kind introduction, Liz. I'm only gonna say a few words uh, to set the stage for this conflict and then turn it over to Ambassador Hutchinson to speak uh, in, in, at length in more detail. So on February 24th, uh, Vladimir Putin announced what he called a special military operation in Ukraine. And less than two weeks later, what we're now seeing is the largest conflict in Europe since the end of World War II. Um, as of today, uh, approximately 1.7 million people are now refugees. Uh, 
It is, according uh, to the UN High Commissioner of Refugees, the, the fastest growing refugee crisis, again, since World War II. The fact of the matter is Ukraine uh, is not a country on a periphery. Uh, oftentimes over the years, commentators in the press described it as such, but the fact of the matter is it is uh, the largest uh, country in Europe or the second largest if you count Russia as part of Europe, um, a country of over 40 million people, uh, a country that historically played a key role in European politics really for centuries. So this is a conflict at the heart uh, of Europe, not on its periphery. Vladimir Putin seeks to dismember Ukraine. He does not consider Ukraine to be a real state. In fact, he said this uh, openly several times over the previous years. Um, so of course, what we're watching today is an absolute tragedy. Um, and the fact of the matter is this crisis goes far beyond Ukraine. It affects everyone. Because the fact of the matter is, as much as Putin is seeking to dismember Ukraine specifically, he's also after something fun much bigger. He is trying to play out the end of the Cold War with an alternate ending. He's attacking the rules-based liberal global order that he despises. So, um, so this conflict is going to continue to affect all of us in the days and weeks ahead. He has also clearly miscalculated the initial uh, stage of the invasion. Uh, Putin uh, seems to have expected uh, a quick and easy victory the way, it, uh, the way it happened with Crimea in uh, March 2014. On the contrary, we are now seeing uh, that the Russian military is sustaining heavy losses, heavier than the Ukrainian military. Um, we also saw that Putin lied to his own military uh, and the Russian military morale is very low um, as opposed to Ukrainians who are united because they know uh, what they're fighting for. Putin also presented this crisis uh, uh, domestically and uh, to the international audiences as a fundamentally defensive operation. In other words, in this warped narrative, it was the West that was being aggressive and hostile and pushed uh, Russia towards war, where Russia had no choice but to act. The fact of the matter is, uh, although, uh, again, Russia is sustaining heavy losses, what we're seeing is Vladimir Putin only doubling down uh, and increasingly targeting civilians with more and more brutality, brutality uh, um, uh, especially in the last uh, several days. It is unfortunately highly possible that we're going to see another uh, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian city turn into another Aleppo, as we've seen in Syria, or perhaps Grozny. This crisis um, is far from over. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Russia continues to demand uh, that Ukraine ceases military actions, uh, changes its constitution to enshrine, enshrine its neutrality, uh, recognize Crimea as Russian territory, and, Russia, and recognize Russian-controlled areas of Donetsk and Luhansk as independence. So this brings us to the present. And now I, uh, it is my pleasure to turn it over to Ambassador Hutchinson to talk a little bit more about NATO's role, uh, about uh, how we should be seeing this conflict, how did we get here and what should we expect in the weeks ahead? Ambassador, Ambassador Hutchinson, please. Well, thank you very much, Anna, for uh, setting that stage with what has happened. Uh, I'm glad that you reiterated all of the timelines because uh, it just seems like we're in a fog. It just seems like we're in the 1920s, not the 2020s. When you see such um, a, uh, the old, warfare uh, being waged in an area of enlightenment. 2022, a modern uh, century with modern technology, and here we are uh, with uh, trenches and tanks and uh, Molotov cocktails. It's just, uh, it's surreal and it's surreal for Americans, but horrific for those who are in Ukraine, who are suffering this bombardment with no provocation whatsoever. And even provocation wouldn't have brought on such a, a horrible, brutal uh, invasion. But the people of Ukraine, and I've been there, I've been to Kiev, I've met with the reformers, the young, enthusiastic parliamentarians, uh, 
of course, uh, I met with Poroshenko when I was there, and now he is uh, he has been in the opposition. Uh, President Zelensky won the election over Mr. Poroshenko, but they're both fighting on the same side now. They have put down all of their disagreements, and both of them are doing what great leaders of countries do, fighting even against such huge odds against them. So I am um, just personally, of course, like everyone, so sad about this. But I also put my NATO hat on, and I also put my um, knowledge of Putin all the time I have been in the United States Senate as well as NATO. And this is not just something he woke up to do. He has been trying to recreate the Soviet Union and restore the mother Russia to its former greatness. And he, we saw in NATO that he was messaging to his population in his uh, pro-nationalist stances, particularly during his quote election times, uh, that, that Russia was robbed of its greatness, uh, mostly by the West, certainly by the United States, and he has had this goal in mind of uh, bringing it back together. That's why he kept messaging that uh, really the Ukraine was part of Russia. It was the beginning of Russia. And um, he, he's living in a time warp, but nevertheless, uh, what he did in Georgia in 2008 was the beginning. And then 2014, Crimea, uh, which is part of Ukraine, and then now, what is even worse than anything he's ever done before um, this unprovoked uh, invasion of a sovereign nation with a duly elected demo democratic president and people who have such a spirit that we are all in awe of the braveness of them uh, standing in front of tanks and trucks with their bodies and saying, leave our country, leave it. We are, we want to be free. And so I think when I hear people asking the question, well, what do you think will happen? What will Putin do? I don't think we can predict um, any more than knowing what that goal is and knowing that his background is one of literally running over people, killing people who are his enemies, poisoning his chief adversary in Russia, Navalny, who is a very brave man as well, who has stood his ground, who came back to Russia from the safety of Germany after the first poisoning and then was thrown in prison. Uh, so we know uh, from that and from uh, the attack on uh, the Mr. Scripple, uh, who is a UK citizen and trying to poison him um, because he considered him a traitor because he left the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, it, those kinds of things show what he will do and that his level of care for his people and their their futures, their comfort, their quality of life um, does not seem to be the level that we would expect of any great leader of a great country. So now where we are, uh, I think that NATO has done the opposite of what Mr. Putin hoped for. He wanted to divide NATO. He has shown through his cyber warfare all the time I was there and before and since uh, that he wants to divide NATO and he keeps um, cyber attacks and social media that uh, probes into disagreements. So he's trying to divide NATO and he's done the opposite. He has brought people together in a way that we haven't seen before. I, I would just call out, uh, for instance, what the Germans are doing right now. Uh, they pivoted so fast with a social, the new social democratic uh, chancellor, 
I have to just give accolades to Mr. Schultz for going straight to his parliament and saying, Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at l-e-e-b at d-b-u dot e-d-u. We are not going to deal with this kind of massacre uh, that is occurring. And he has committed to uh, reach the 2% in defense spending. He committed to let arms go into uh, the Ukraine for the defense of those people as they have never done before. And this is something that every president I have worked with from President Clinton to, to uh, Bush to Obama uh, and now uh, Trump and then Biden, every president that, with whom I've worked has always said, Europe needs to do more for its security. We need Germany to step up. And Germany is truly now stepping up and they and they have the support of the people. When Mr. Schultz, the chancellor, uh, made these pronouncements to parliament, uh, he has the support of parliament and the people, thousands of Germans in the Brandenburg Gate uh, saying with, with Ukrainian flags, um, saying, yes, we should, we should be doing this. After so many years of, of really being pacifist. So I get, I just, thank him. I thank uh, Chancellor Schultz, who I've not met, but he is doing the right thing for his country. And then, of course, stopping Nord Stream 2, uh, which was certainly something that our presidents have uh, have said is should never have been started, but nevertheless, now uh, hopefully is ended permanently. And that's what I do hope Congress and our president uh, today will uh, will say and will make sure is law that uh, we would be uh, against any resurrection of Nord Stream 2. I can't even imagine that that would happen now. So going forward, and then I certainly want to take questions or, or answer anything that uh, Anna, you wanted to put forward. The, the other thing that I think I will say is that our alliance has come together in so many ways. Um, to to be united on sanctions against uh, the the Russian economy because it is the only leverage we have. We are we are trying to be very careful uh, not to provoke a uh, a nuclear war, uh, trying to, not to provoke a world war, uh, because if President Putin invades any NATO country we are all in this war. We are in it, we've committed to it, and we want to avoid it. And that's why we are treading in the support of Ukraine while also beefing up the deterrence on the borders of Ukraine that are NATO allies. And, and then of course, uh, trying to assure that our European allies have what they would need to withstand uh, any kind of provocation that would uh, go into Europe uh, by Putin. So now we have to look at what more we can do. And I think all of the things that are being discussed are warranted. I don't think we should take anything off the table, except that we are going to uh, play it straight with um, not not getting ourselves involved in a way that would cause uh, Putin to do something that is truly irrational, uh, which is the use of nuclear or uh, any further escalation. Uh, the other thing, though, that I think is still out there is energy. Energy is our only leverage. Energy is Russia's lifeline, and we need to cut it off. We need to lead the way to ban imports from Russia, including oil and gas, 
It is their revenue stream. America is today importing Russian oil and gas, and we must stop that. And I think the Congress is coming together on a very bipartisan basis to say that. And I think when Speaker Pelosi came out and said, yes, we should consider this now, uh, that was a signal that there could be a bipartisan agreement that we would ban Russian imports of oil and gas. But the next step is also important. And that is rather than having our gasoline prices at the pump go up further, we need to open our production of natural gas and oil in our country. We have the resources. We have been energy independent in this country and we have excess that we can ship to our allies in Europe so that when they give up, when they ban Russian um, imports into their countries, that we can supply them. I wish we could send an armada of American ships loaded with LNG to give the level of natural gas to our allies that would keep them from needing Russian oil and gas for their economies. Now, it will take some time to gear up, but President Putin needs to see that he cannot have this kind of lifeline over any period of time. And we will suffer for a while as well, but we need to turn off his revenue stream as the only leverage that we have uh, against this brutal invasion that he is doing. So I am hoping that the president will work with the bipartisan uh, majority and minority in Congress that will support a very strong package of help, both humanitarian as well as military arms uh, to the Ukraine. Those people deserve everything that we can give them. They want to fight for themselves and we need to help them get the capability to fight for themselves. And then the second thing is to shut off oil and gas from Russia's and provide it for ourselves. And I hope that can be a bipartisan basis too. Provide it for our own public, not to have higher gasoline prices at the pump. We're already in sticker shock. Uh, we don't want more, but we are willing to sacrifice too uh, so that the people of Ukraine might have a chance to keep their democracy and their country, which they so well deserve. And thank you, Anna. Thank you for being on the, the program. And let me also just say thank you to Liz Brailsford and the uh, DFW World Affairs Council for holding uh, these kinds of webinars so that we can share our information and share our views and uh, keep going in the right direction together because America needs to come together too in order to do everything we can for the Ukraine people. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Uh, thank you for, 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 for these remarks. And if I may take a, a moderator's uh, prerogative uh, very quickly to uh, respond to uh, what you said because it's so important. I think it needs to be reiterated. Uh, that energy is Putin's lifeline. It is what's funding his war machine right now. And as much um, as it may pain us um, economically, domestically, uh, I think the hard reality is that uh, we had such an unprecedented era of prosperity and peace. And that is the, that is the result of a US-led global order um, that the world has not seen before. Um, we, I think, forgot what it's like to put up with discomfort. And as much as, as you said, Ambassador, it is important to put forth uh, safeguards to ensure that we keep prices low. Uh, it is also important um, for us as democracy, as a democracy to understand that sometimes principle is more important and putting principle should be, principle should go first because this is what we share with Ukraine. Ukraine shares our values of freedom, of liberty. Um, it is the most fundamental, most cherished value that we have. So I, I wanted to reiterate that point that you made, Ambassador. Um, uh, if I may, uh, I only have a couple of questions, and uh, then I will uh, turn it over to uh, to the two questions from the audience, which I'm going to read to you. So my first question for you, Ambassador, is uh, when you talked about NATO coming together, and this was indeed 
a very important result, as you said, uh, Putin wanted to divide NATO, but instead he succeeded in bringing it closer together. Um, and you had mentioned sanctions. Now, of course, sanctions, especially sanctions against the military industrial complex will take a long time uh, to take effect. Uh, having said that, we've also seen the ruble plunge, um, but we're still far, uh, far, far, far away from the type of um, sort of in, invoking the type of cost that would fundamentally stop the war. Um, how do you assess other steps that NATO has taken? And you started talking about this, but if you could walk us through a little bit more about in terms of what type of weapon we've provided to Ukraine. Um, there's been uh, a discussion about a no-fly zone, which NATO has ruled out, uh, but instead President Zelensky asked for uh, helicopters. So if you could talk a little bit more about the military side of this conflict. Yes, most certainly we are providing, have already, but are doing more uh, for Stinger and Javelin missiles. Those are both air and land missiles that would help them so much in stopping, especially what's going on now as they are, as the Russians are surrounding Kiev, the capital. Um, and I think that's important, but I think helicopters and aircraft, I think that is a very legitimate request. And I know there is a negotiation going on right now um, that Poland would give to the Ukraine some of the Russian planes that they have had since they were able to uh, withdraw from the Soviet Union. Uh, but the, the pilots in Ukraine would know better how to fly those. And there will, I'm sure, be trainers as well there. But, um, and then Poland wants to replace those MiGs with the uh, F-16s that we certainly could do. I think that is in the works and I am very optimistic that that can be worked out and that will help the Ukraine uh, arm, uh, Army or Air Force um, immensely to be able to have uh, some of that capability. And I also, I wanna do one more shout out and that is something that I haven't seen very much um, in the news in America, but it's certainly important. And that is with the AJC helping to support um, the World Affairs Council. And uh, Israel is actually playing a very important role here, very much behind the scenes, but um, doing shuttle diplomacy, if that is possible, uh, by talking uh, to Putin and uh, the German Chancellor, as well as um, President Zelensky, and um, trying to come to some um, accord for, uh, for stopping, having a ceasefire uh, and helping the refugees, etc. And when President Putin called President Zelensky and his cabinet Nazis. That was that was so absurd yeah. and hard to even believe that he would make such an outlandish statement, especially since President Zelensky is Jewish. And uh, it was just, uh, I mean, he continues to surprise in the very worst ways. And that was another low point. But Israel is stepping up uh, and trying to be um, some kind of an arbiter because it's a very difficult uh, situation that no one seems to be able to, uh, to get some, um, it, it's just very hard to see how you can get to President Putin when he's making such outlandish remarks. If, if I may follow up on that, how, uh, how realistic do you think these efforts are, especially knowing um, the way Vladimir Putin's mind works, he looks down at most countries, uh, even as he seeks Western legitimacy, he has this tendency to think that they're great powers and there are those beneath them. Um, my understanding it was that, is that it was Zelensky that asked for Israel's mediation. Um, how do you think uh, Putin is going to respond to that? Very hard to tell. Um, I don't know. It, it's hard to, to know what would make sense to someone that's so out of the range of reality? So I, I would he hesitate to say, 
that anyone could be successful with someone who has made, uh, who has been brandishing the nuclear sword. Um, how do you make sense of someone like that? And so I don't know, uh, and I just don't want to even guess that this might be the breakthrough, but I do give Israel credit for saying, yes, we'll try and having in-person meetings with uh, President Putin that were not really that well advertised. And if something can work, we have to try for it. And that's why everyone keeps saying, you always keep the di diplomacy door open, even when things seem so impossible. There's no reason to close a door, but it, there's also no reason to lessen the um, sanctions and the leverage that we have. We need to be strong now because if Putin thinks that we are weak and that we will forget about this, as he actually was able to see after Georgia and after, after Crimea, we all recalled in horror and then went on our regular path um, he might think that we would just forget about it because it's getting so tough. We can't forget about it because if we forget about it and he thinks that he can continue to do this, then it's going to get worse and worse and we're going to have to take more and more steps and we're going to end up in a war if he takes on any NATO country. And uh, it would be very uh, like Putin just to see if he could get by with it and he won't. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, one more question, uh, and then I'll turn it over to, to the audience, if I may. Uh, uh, you had mentioned several times the, the, the concern of drawing NATO into a war. Uh, now, we often think about this in terms of conventional means, and I can think of a number of scenarios how Putin could try to create a false flag operation, as he had done in the past, and so forth. Uh, but um, what about uh, cyber attacks? Um, uh, cyber attacks is, is, is one of these issues uh, that is, again, Putin is, uh, is some, excelled in this in recent years. It's a, it's a much cheaper operation. And it raises the question of whether or not Article 5 uh, would apply in, in, in such a case. And, you know, and, and that just raises a whole host of other questions. What if we don't respond? What message does that send and so forth? So could you talk us a little bit through that scenario? Yes, that cyber is a new domain now at NATO, where it's we haven't had one, so there's not a, a clear definition, but it is in the domain that if it if it did occur in a way that um, was um, warlike, as what is happening right now on the ground, um, if he did that to a NATO country, it it could be an Article Five. Um, so we have declared two new areas that are domains of war, potential war, deterrence most certainly. Um, and one is cyber and the other is space. We now have space as a domain uh, because so much is happening in space and so much can happen with artificial intelligence, with uh, laser guided missiles, with all kinds of um, of operations that could uh, disable a, an effort and, and disable a deterrence. So we've declared that uh, at the last summit where I was the ambassador, um, that was declared. And so that's part of it, but it is hard to describe what would rise to the level. And that is something that all 30 nations of NATO would have the capability to decide. And as you know, I'm sure uh, NATO acts by unanimous consent. So all 30 would have to declare if we went to a war. There's another article that isn't as much in the forefront, but article four uh, is an article that allows any of our countries to um, ask for a special meeting, a special summit on if they feel at risk, a security risk. And so Article 4 
is is a way for a country to come forward and say what is happening in their country and reporting on it, giving the intel uh, in 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 what is happening, so that everyone is aware of of what kind of tactics are being used, and then um, it could result in Article Five or it might not. Uh, but that would be the decision to be made. But it's certainly within the realm of possibility if a cyber attack shut down, uh, for instance, um, a, a whole uh, electric grid in the winter that was killing people. I mean, is that a cyber attack? I think so. Article five, that would be my view. Uh, but of course, that would be a NATO position to have to discuss. Thank you. Well, let me turn over to the audience questions. Uh, I'm going to read them out loud. First question is, what do you make of the fears of this war spreading to other non-NATO countries like Moldova? Well, most certainly we are staying in close touch with Moldova, both our U.S. Uh, officials as well as NATO, because it is right there on that border, but also very well, next to Romania, and um, we will work with Moldova in every way. I think they are right to be fearful because uh, it, President Putin has shown that he is very cunning. And so he has actually attacked non-NATO countries, probably on purpose. He knows what Article 5 is, and he knows that it is inviolate that if he steps over the line in any NATO country, that he will have declared war on all of us. And so he's been clever uh, and he has gone into his uh, countries that border Russia and he has mistreated those people and Georgia and Ukraine uh, were the first, are the first, but Moldova and um, of course, Belarus has become an ally, but um, it, but Moldova, I, I would worry about for sure. And I hope that, and, and I think that we will help them, but it, but they're not a NATO country. And, um, and I think those would be the kinds of places that one could think that maybe Putin would be looking at if he's successful in Ukraine. Right now, I think he is, um, I think Kazakhstan was also mentioned because Kazakhstan, to their great credit, uh, or uh, Mr. Putin asked them to send troops into uh, help on the Ukraine effort, and they said no. And to their great credit, they said no, but then that also means that um, Putin has put a mark on his list, and so they now uh, should be deterring, gearing up to deter, as should Mo Moldova, and we will be helpful to them, uh, I am sure. I don't know, I can't say that we are, but I, I would imagine we are. I know that uh, the Secretary of State did go to Moldova, and I know that he met with his counterparts there um, and so that is good. And I, I feel that we would be helpful at this point with both Moldova, Kazakhstan, and any place else that might feel threatened. Although um, if it were a NATO country, President Putin would know that he would have a much different situation. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, next question. Do you support NATO establishing a no-fly zone in Ukraine? Oh, that's such a tough question. Um, I'm not going to be critical of NATO or the United States uh, on saying that uh, we cannot do that. Um, I, I would not be critical if there came a unanimous um, view that we should, but I think the reasoning is correct that if we establish a no-fly zone, it means we have to then implement it. That means if it is uh, invaded that fly zone that we would have to take the action to shoot down the invader. And that means we would be then in a war uh, with Russia. So I support the decision not to, although it's very hard uh, when you see 
the advantage that Russia has uh, with um, the Ukraine's not having the real capability to shoot down um, aircraft that are going to drop bombs on them. And so I, it's a very tough, tough question. And um, I think the decision, I, I will not argue with the decision at all because um, I think you, we have to be as careful as we can not to get into this war from our side because if Putin does step over the line in one of the NATO countries, we have to be prepared, which on the other hand, we are preparing. We are sending more troops into the neighboring countries that are NATO countries, more into Poland, more into Lithuania, uh, Latvia and Estonia. And we are fully prepared, Romania, uh, to answer any kind of effort there. Let me bring up one other thing, and that is we are very carefully watching the Black Sea and uh, what the Russians are doing right now is clearly trying to shut off any uh, access uh, that, well, actually to open up the access for the Ukraines uh, to get into the Ukrainian exit into the Black Sea. I'm glad you're showing that map because you can see right down there at Odessa, if the Russians shut that off for the Ukraines, they also then control the Black Sea. And it, that would be a major uh, provocation um, for the other countries that are bordering the Black Sea. So it goes Turkey and um, uh, Romania. Um, there are all around the Southern part of the Black Sea, uh, Bulgaria, you've got um, NATO countries. So uh, that's something that we ought to be watching. And I know the military are watching very carefully. Thank you, Ambassador. And indeed, the question of the no-fly zone is, is very hard. I myself had to do some very hard thinking on that as well, um, because the, your heart really goes out when you watch what's happening. And um, so I understand your difficulty and um, uh, I very much share, <laughs> share your hard. feelings on this. Um, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is, yes, yeah, look, if, if a plane enters a no-fly zone that we are enforcing, if it's a Russian plane, we have to shut it down. Um, and this raises the questions of, of, are we entering a war with, with Russia? Um, but this is very, very hard. Uh, next question, <laughs> if I may. Uh, uh, would you consider Putin a rational actor? It would not appear so. I mean, I just don't see how you could call President Zelensky a Nazi. I don't see how you could uh, put all these almost, um, it, he's not talking irrationally, uh, rationally. Um, and so whether you can reason with someone that is saying things that are so out of uh, the realm of possibility or rationality, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm not, no one knows what he's thinking now. No one that is, we're all trying to give opinions about whether he's rational, but I don't think we're qualified to know how a mind works that could be so uh, out of the realm of reason to be shooting innocent people. I mean, when I see a picture of dead people with their bags next to them because they're trying to leave. I mean, how can anyone see that picture and think there's a rational person behind shooting at civilians with their little roller bags? It's impossible to think that's rational. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, and very hard question again. Um, 
uh, next question. Do you think that if we had reacted to the Crimea invasion as seriously as we are reacting to you, the Ukraine invasion uh, today, we would be in the we would we, we would be in the same mess. NATO and the, uh, NATO and the U.S. is, is no. I apologize. I, I did not read that <laughs> correctly. But I think you understood. <laughs> you know, I hate to to judge people when we didn't know what we know now. Uh, we did object, and we put sanctions on Russia uh, when they took Crimea. What I think should have been really the wake-up call is when Russia started building the bridge from Russia, uh, from the Crimea, then into Russia, because it, it connected Russia to the Crimea. And, um, and we still did not react. Uh, now they have uh, missiles, the, the violating INF treaty, as we know Russia did for years, they violated and were producing an intermediate range ballistic missile that could be nuclear capable. Uh, and they started putting those on Crimea so that they have a range now of hitting any of the countries on the Black Sea, um, as well as many other European countries. And um, that's when I think uh, we should have noticed and, and taken further action. But I will say that in the time that we were trying to get a united front uh, with Europe, on sanctioning Russia, there was a there was a hesitance on the part of some of the Europeans uh, to be provocative or to uh, not keep open the di diplomatic discussion door with Russia or to want to trade with Russia or to do what we've seen with the Nord Stream too, uh, having a pipeline bring oil and gas straight into Germany. Uh, all of these things used to be factors. Now, I think the Europeans are seeing what, what Russia can really do, what Putin can really do. And so to look back and say, should we have done more? Yes, we should have done more at Georgia. But again, uh, Russia went in, they took the two provinces, and then they, they started hardening those borders. They started making a border uh, that shut off people in Georgia on the other side of their border. And they started teaching school in Russian so that the children are growing up speaking Russian in Georgia. Um, so should we have done more then? Sure. Should we have done more at Crimea? Sure. When they built the land bridge, for sure. Uh, but Golly, that's hard uh, to look back and be critical when we didn't know the brutality that this man could really do. Uh, none of us did, but I will say America has always been for more sanctions on Russia through every administration. And um, that it never seemed to work. And even the harsh sanctions that we are putting on now are still not deterring Putin. So right. it's hard to, to judge, especially in hindsight. Absolutely, and uh, I would very much agree. Unfortunately, sanctions alone have not deterred Putin. Uh, another invasion, of course, uh, it was also the, uh, in the intervention in Syria where Russia established a, a strategically vital presence on the Eastern Mediterranean, where, uh, in, uh, where many analysts at the time thought Russia would find itself in a quagmire, but uh, it was actually a low cost operation that gained Russia a number of strategic objectives. And we're seeing that playing out in Ukraine um, today. Uh, we have a little bit less than 10 minutes remaining. I think we have maybe time for one or two more questions. Uh, I'm going to read one question and see and see how it, how it goes. Um, you mentioned uh, Chancellor Schultz pulling an about face and stepping up Germany's defense commitments. Do you think Putin's invasion of Ukraine has triggered a permanent shift in how Western countries approach Russia, or will we resume a softer stance over time? 
Oh, I, I think this wake up call will be a stiffening of the spine of the Europeans who have resisted uh, provoking Russia. Now, all of that assumes that Putin will be in power there. Uh, and I'm not sure that is a good assumption. I hope it isn't. I hope that the people rise up and, um, and take Putin away from the leadership position. You know, something was said earlier uh, about um, uh, previous um, Russian leaders that had uh, lost the confidence of the Politburo uh, because the Politburo um, surrounding the Russian presidents, uh, Yeltsin and Khrushchev and uh, others, had a power to uh, dethrone. But there is no power such as a Politburo today. And uh, so Putin seems to be even... Uh, standoffish from his own um, administration, whatever you would call it. Um, and that means no one can tell him that he will listen to, uh, you're doing the wrong thing, or what are you thinking, or what is, if this is step A, what is step B? What is the end game here? Um, and I think that if Putin is still in power in Russia. I think that everyone has clear eyes about dealing with them. And I think that the efforts to withhold from his, from his economy will take an effect. Now, the, there's one other factor here and that is China. And if China props up Putin's economy, uh, that's going to make this a longer ordeal. And I think uh, she is, uh, is trying to just continue to bedevil the West. Uh, he thinks that's just great what Putin is doing. And um, he also knows that he has designs on Taiwan and he's watching what the West is going to do about Putin uh, to determine what he would do uh, if he tries to invade Taiwan. Now, um, of course, I think he could prop up Putin for a while and that would prolong this. But if Putin is in charge, I think the West will be firm. I, I do believe that what uh, Germany and France and the Western Europeans are doing, and then you don't have to try to persuade the Eastern Europeans. Let me tell you, I served at NATO with them and they are clear-eyed about Russia and they have been since they were able to free themselves from the Soviet Union. And so they are going to be constant. They're, they have strong backbones and Poland is the leader in, the, in that right now. Um, and I don't think, in Romania, uh, and I don't think they're going to ever get uh, soft on Russia. But I think now you've got a united NATO and a united Europe. Um, and I think as long as Putin is in power, that will remain. If Putin is not in power, and if they then had an uprising that would allow for a reformer uh, to come forward and begin to uh, have a country that did have human rights and a rule of law and an economy that was a, a fair and level playing field, then I think everyone would, we, we don't have a war with the Russian people. I mean, the Russian people are good people. They're just under the iron fist of a despotic leader. And, and they, don't, they don't have the ability to withstand uh, the torture that, many of them are going through right now, like Mr. Navalny, who is so brave and um, amazing. Uh, but you've seen pictures of uh, protesters in Russia and they're being kicked by the police and beaten and heaven knows what's going on in their prisons. So um, 
I think if we saw a reform effort, we would be supportive of that. All of us would. We would want Russia to be a great country. It has a great history and we would want for it to be a great country again, but not dealing with someone who would kill civilians in the streets and bomb the buildings and, uh, and target uh, people trying to just live in freedom. Uh, that's, that will never happen if Putin is allowed to stay in, in place. And if I may add super quickly to that, as uh, because I, I'm American, but I came uh, from Russia as a refugee, uh, the, the suffering uh, that this war has caused is being borne by the Russian people who've suffered the heaviest casualties. And, the, and uh, Putin has lied to members of his own military, his soldiers. Many of his soldiers did not know they were going to fight a war. They thought they were going uh, for training. Uh, mothers will never find the, the, the bodies of their sons. So, so they're paying an incredibly high price for this uh, war as well. Um, we have time for just one more question super quickly, Ambassador. Let, let me read that uh, to you and then we need to conclude. Um, it is my understanding that NATO will not admit countries with active territorial disputes. It seems that Putin deliberately exploits this fact by uh, fomenting separatism in Eastern European countries, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia. How can European nations defend against this tactic? Well, you're absolutely right uh, that the qualifications for coming into NATO are uh, very strict about having a resilient democracy, a rule of law, free press, human rights. Um, and Ukraine was in the process of a reform government. Uh, they had fair elections and they elected a reformer to President Zelensky and they, their parliament has reformers that are, they're wonderful. Um, inspirational uh, people that are trying so hard to make a great democracy. And I think that uh, it is essential for anyone to come into NATO that there be that resilience. And if there is a territorial dispute, if Russia is, is holding uh, part of a country, then they couldn't be a NATO ally because you couldn't share secrets with a, a government that wasn't able to keep the uh, communications at NATO um, within NATO and secure. So um, I think that we will be helpful to the countries like Moldova. I should have mentioned them earlier as well. Uh, but those countries that want to keep their freedom, we will be helpful to them and try to help them gear up with defense mechanisms to protect themselves. And one of the, one of the other parts of uh, getting into NATO is that you have a military, a trained military that can add to NATO. It, it's not, you know, we don't try to go uh, to people who are not military, we, we say, here's what we are. We're a nuclear alliance. We are a nuclear deterrent. We don't wanna use nuclear weapons. Uh, that's why we, we put our efforts into deterring a bigger conflict. So that's, that is, uh, no one will be able to, no country will be able to come into NATO until they have these things in place. And so we want to help them get to that point uh, because we are, we do have an open door. We want to have Ukraine. We want to have Georgia, uh, but they're not ready now. But if they ever say they want in uh, and they are ready and they have met all of the criteria, uh, well, of course, we have an open door. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Um, and thank you for your service to our country. It's a pleasure having this discussion with you today. And I'll turn it over to Liz. Thank you very much to both of you. What a critical conversation. What a fantastic discussion, although uh, of the topic. Thank you. I knew that this would provide uh, excellent insight and perspective. 
Thank you. Uh, I'd also like to invite our viewers to uh, uh, look at the screen that we're going to put up, and you are welcome to look at these resources. We are not personally endorsing them, but please do your own research. We have uh, uh, this list and encourage you to, to help where you can, and if you can, also, uh, also, if you're not a member of the council, please join us. And then this is completely off topic, but I have to mention, uh, I was reading DCEO this weekend and saw an article, 78 Women Who Make Dallas Great. And Ambassador Hutchison was in that article as one of the uh, premier women in this article. And we are incredibly lucky to have you in our orbit and our community, Ambassador Hutchison. We really appreciate you and we really appreciate your support of our council. So thank you. And Anna, we're looking forward to having you back soon. Uh, thank you both. Again, have a great evening and we will come back soon with another program.